Welcome back, my fellow creatives. I am excited to be perusing these recommended reads you have sent me here on Story Cuppings. It's time we take a sip from yet another neat piece of fiction that a fellow indie writer recommended to me, uh, Paul Andrus, who is awesome, and I'll make sure I have his uh, Amazon page in the episode description, he recommended that I take a look at A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller Jr. And this cover is very ominous. <laughs> um, and I am noting there's lots of unique dystopian, speculative, oh my goodness, um, let's see here, relentless progression of a human race damned by its inherent humanness. <laughs> oh, well, that already sounds like we're there. Anyway, um, but no, I am, I am intrigued and I am eager to take a look at this. We'll see how this goes. I mean, granted, you know, sipping from something new, we may not care for the flavors of the blend, but that's just because we are picky readers and working writers, aren't we? And it's like, hmm, I don't know, but maybe we'll like it. That's the thing about cuppings. You get to try all sorts of different kinds of coffee. So we are going to try all different kinds of fiction. All right, let's, well, I'm not going to look at, there's an introduction, but I'm skipping it. <laughs> I want to get to the story. All right. So I'm hoping I will pronounce things correctly. I do not have a good track record for that though. So I apologize in advance. Let us take a look at a canticle for Leibowitz and see what we make of this unique dystopian monks are ruling the world. <laughs> Wait, I'm probably misreading that. In a nightmarish world ruined in a nightmarish ruined world, slowly awakening to the light after sleeping in darkness, the infant rediscoveries of science are secretly nourished by cloistered monks dedicated to the study and preservation of the relics and writings of the blessed Saint Isaac Leibowitz. All right. Let's see how these monks are doing their thing here. So last time I read, I used to be a big fan of reading uh, the CAD file mysteries. Uh, those were, those were always a joy. That and I love the, the uh, adaptations that Sir Derek Jacobi starred in. Those are always a good time to watch. Did that a lot with my, my family. And um, Umberto Echo's In the Name of the Rose is such a chilling story. And I mean, yes, there's the film with Sean Connery being Sean Connery. Okay. But I, I love the, the prose of the novel is a beautiful thing. I, I, sh I should probably share some Umberto Echo on here sometime. But we are here for a Canticle of Leibowitz. My point is, <laughs> after all those crazy tangents, I like stories with monks in them. So I am, I'm, I'm excited to see how this particular uh, tale goes. All right, now for sure and for serious, we are going to look at part one. Is it Fiat Homo? I'm hopefully saying that right. We'll find out. All right, chapter one. Brother Francis Gerard of Utah 
might never have discovered the blessed documents had it not been for the pilgrim with girded loins who appeared during that young novice's Lenten fast in the desert. That's a lot packed into one sentence. My goodness. Okay, so we have the monk's name. It's a pretty traditional name. But the monk is in Utah, which is immediately a bit jarring. And yet, for those who understand Utah's history, or at least a little bit of its history, and it's a very religiously driven state because of the Mormons or Latter-day Saints. Uh, so that automatically gives me a f different flavor here of our story setting of where who this monk is and i'm wondering immediately it's like is this have to do with the mormons it's because we'll see um but and the fact that you know part of the mormon religion had to do with the discovery of sacred texts um buried in a in a mysterious place um but yeah the lenten fast in the desert i mean a lot of utah is fair chunk of Utah is desert. So I could, I could see how someone would, <laughs> if you get lost out in Utah, you're in trouble. Back to the story. Never before had Brother Francis actually seen a pilgrim with girded loins, but that this one was the bona fide article, he was convinced as soon as he had recovered from the spine-chilling effect of the pilgrim's advent on the far horizon, as a wiggling iota of black caught in a shimmering haze of heat, legless but wearing a tiny head. The iota materialized out of the mirror glaze on the broken roadway and seemed more to writhe than to walk into view, causing Brother Francis to clutch the crucifix of his rosary and mutter an ave or two. The iota suggested a tiny apparition, spawned by the heat demons who tor tortured the land at high noon, when any creature capable of motion in the desert, except the buzzards and a few mon monastic hermits such as Francis, lay motionless in its burrow or hid beneath a rock from the ferocity of the sun. Only a thing monstrous, a thing preternatural, or a thing with addled wits would hike purposefully down the trail at noon on this day. Brother Francis added a hasty prayer to St. Raul the Cyclopean, patron of the misborn, for protection against the saint's unhappy protégés. For who did not know, for who did not then know that there were monsters in the earth in those days? That which was born alive was, by the law of the church and the law of nature, suffered to live, and helped to maturity, if possible, by those who had begotten it. The law was not always obeyed, but it was obeyed with sufficient frequency to sustain a scattered population of adult monsters, who often chose the remotest of deserted lands for their wanderings, where they prowled by night around the fires of prairie travelers. Ooh. Getting a little chill there. <laughs> um, it's, and, you know, the, the term monster, when, when he is initially talking about patron of the misborn, and so I'm thinking when he is referring to adult monsters, my brain automatically went in two different directions because I've, I've read of my share of, you know, straight up fantasy where it's like, oh, it's going to be a hippogriff copyright, I'm sure. But uh, it's going to be, you know, mythological beast A, mythological beast B, or it could just be, you know, the misborn 
humans who like all I can think of is the movie Freaks at this point where you know born and raised with their deformities and just learning to live as best they can with what they have be they all their limbs or not all their limbs or all of their faculties or not um could that be considered the monster of this story one who is not by outward appearances the same i don't know yet i'm talking too much so let's get back to the story the pilgrim was a spindly old fellow with a staff a basket hat a brushy beard and a water skin slung over one shoulder he was chewing and spitting with too much relish to be an apparition, and he seemed too frail and lame to be a successful practitioner of ogreism or highwaymanship. Nevertheless, Francis slunk quietly out of the pilgrim's line of sight and crouched behind a heap of rubbled stone where he could watch without being seen. Encounters between strangers in the desert, while rare, were occasions of mutual suspicion, and marked by initial preparations on both sides for an incident that might prove either cordial or warlike. Seldom more than thrice annually did any layman or stranger travel the old road that passed the abbey, in spite of the oasis which permitted the abbey's existence, and which would have made the monastery a natural inn for wayfarers if the road were not a road from nowhere, leading nowhere, in terms of the modes of travel in those times. Perhaps in earlier ages, the road had been a portion of the shortest route from the Great Salt Lake to Old El Paso, south of, south of the Abbey. It intersected, a similar strip of broken stone that stretched east and westward. The crossing was worn by time, but not by man, of late. The pilgrim approached within hailing distance, but the novice stayed behind his mound of rubble. The pilgrim's loins were truly girded with a piece of dirty burlap, his only clothing except for hat and sandals. Doggedly, he plodded ahead with a mechanical limp while assisting his crippled leg with the heavy staff. His rhythmic gait was that of a man with a long road behind him, a long way yet to go. But upon entering the area of the ancient ruins, he broke his stride and paused to reconnoiter. Francis ducked low. So we got a bit of world building here. Uh, I mean, keep in mind, we are, I'm on my second page. And we could be wondering, you know, where on earth and when on earth we are. And now we're getting a sense that <clears throat> that this time is not old something is different here so i know because you know you look on the back of the book and then you find out it's speculative <laughs> sorry um but you know in the story we're getting at a second a sense of that on the second page that old el paso that this road is from an earlier age and and that these roads are not used by man as of late well then something's happened that man no longer moves as he used to let's see if we get a little more answer to that there was no shade amid the cluster of mounds where a group of age-old buildings once had been 
but some of the larger stones could nevertheless provide cooling refreshment to select portions of the anatomy for travelers as wise in the way of the desert as the pilgrim soon proved himself to be. He searched briefly for a rock of suitable proportions. Approvingly, Brother Francis noted that he did not grasp the stone and rashly tug, but instead stood at a safe distance from it and using a staff as a lever and a smaller rock for a fulcrum he jostled the weightier one until the inevitable buzzing creature crawled forth from below dispassionately the traveler killed the snake with his staff and flipped the still wriggling carcass aside having dispatched the occupant of the cool cranny beneath the stone the pilgrim availed himself of the cool cranny ceiling by the usual method of overturning the stone Thereupon, he pulled up the back of his loincloth and sat with his withered buttocks against the stone's relatively chilly underside, kicked off his sandals and pressed the soles of his feet against what had been the sandy floor of the cool cranny. Thus refreshed, he wiggled his toes, smiled, smiled toothlessly, and began to hum a tune. Soon he was singing a kind of crooning chant in a dialect not known to the novice. Weary of crouching, Brother Francis shifted restlessly. <clears throat> I just wanted to pause quick here because I know we, we see we have a little bit of time and I wanted to cover at least a little bit more. But it hit me as I was reading that this is the kind of story where it would have been easy enough to do an info dump in these first couple of pages where Brother Francis could basically, ever since the war of the bookshelves and the sectors and factions of the literature versus um, fiction. I'm, I'm not coming up with good things on the fly. Sorry, that is not my strong suit. <laughs> I am not one to ad lib. Um, but my point is, uh, Miller does not break down the world for us in this first chapter. We are not given a solid foundation on which to stand on in these opening pages. We are given just enough dirt to stand on, but we have no clue what's under this dirt. We have no clue if it's going to be, you know, if we're going to get sucked down in quicksand in a minute. We have no clue, if, you know, which direction our next steps are going to go. Miller is... <laughs> You can almost say he's playing it close to the chest as far as these world building details. We are only getting a little bit at a time. And so far on the second page, we, we got a sense that, that what we know of as reality is not their reality. That our, that our age is past and gone. And so this age sounds like it has gone backwards in our, as far as, development and population and such a return in a way to the middle ages by all this talk of the of how the monk is acting and the pilgrim is dressed and acting as well so let's see if we get any more sense of the world building in these next couple of paragraphs and hopefully i'm coming through because it's pouring rain outside right now all right while he's saying the pilgrim uh, the pilgrim unwrapped a biscuit and a bit of cheese. 
Then his singing paused, and he stood for a moment to cry out softly in the vernacular of the region. Blessed be Adonai Elohim, King of all, who maketh bread to spring forth from the earth. And a sort of nasal bleat. Sorry, I didn't do the... I, I didn't bleat. Sorry. The bleat, bleat being finished, he sat again and commenced eating. The wanderer had come a long way indeed, thought Brother Francis, who knew of no adjacent adjacent realm governed by a monarch with such an unfamiliar name and such strange pretensions. The old man was making a penitential pilgrimage, hazarded Brother Francis, perhaps to the shrine at the abbey, although the shrine was not yet officially a shrine, nor was its saint yet officially a saint. Brother Francis could think of no alternate explanation of the presence of an old wanderer on this road leading to nowhere. The pilgrim was taking his time with the bread and cheese, and the novice grew increasingly restless as his own anxiety waned. The rule of silence for the Lenten fast days did not permit him to converse voluntarily with the old man. But if he left his hiding place behind the rubble heap before the old man departed, he was certain to be seen or heard by the pilgrim, for he had been forbidden to leave the vicinity of his hermitage before the end of Lent. Still slightly hesitant, Brother Francis loudly cleared his throat, then straightened into view. Whoop! I... What a curious sound to make. Okay. The pilgrim's bread and cheese went flying. Mine would too. The old man grabbed his staff and bounded to his feet. Creep up on me, will you? He brandished the staff menacingly at the hooded figure with who had wait at the hooded figure, which had arisen from beyond the rock pile. Brother Francis noticed that the thick end of the staff was armed with a spike. The novice bowed courteously thrice, but the pilgrim overlooked this nicety. Stay back there now, he croaked. Just keep your distance, sport. I've got nothing you're after, unless it's the cheese. And you can have that. If it's meat you want, I'm nothing but gristle. But I'll fight to keep it. Back now, back. Ooh. So there be cannibalism in this day and age. Oh, goody. Wait, the novice paused. Charity or even common courtesy could take precedence over the Lenten rule of silence when circumstances demanded speech, but to break silence on his own decision always left him slightly nervous. I, I'm not a sport, good simpleton, he continued, using the polite address. He tossed back his hood to show his monastic haircut and held up his rosary beads. Do you understand these? For several seconds, the old man remained in cat-like readiness for combat while he studied the novice's sun-blistered, adolescent face. The pilgrims had been a natural mistake. Grotesque creatures who prowled the fringes of the desert often wore hoods, masks, or, vol volum or voluminous, voluminous, there we go, I got there in the end, voluminous robes to hide deformity. Among them were those whose deformity were not limited to the body those who sometimes looked on travelers as a dependable source of venison. After a brief scrutiny, the pilgrim straightened. Oh, one of them! He leaned on his staff and scowled. Is that the Leibowitz Abbey down yonder? He asked, pointing toward the distant cluster of buildings to the south. Brother Francis bowed politely and nodded at the ground. What are you doing out here in the ruins? The novice picked up a chalk-like fragment of stone. That the traveler might be literate was statistically unlikely, but Brother Francis decided to try. 
since the vulgar dialects of the people had neither alphabet nor orthography, he chalked the Latin words for penance, solitude, and silence on a large flat stone, and wrote them again be below in ancient English, hoping, in spite of his unacknowledged yearning for someone to talk to, that the old man would understand him and leave him to his lonely Lenten vigil. The pilgrim smiled wryly at the inscription. His laugh seemed less a lay laugh than a fatalistic bleat. Hmm! Still writing things backward, he said. But he understood the inscription. He did not con condescend to admit it. And I know I gotta stop, so, but that, that says a lot right there, too. Again, Miller could have done a big info dump about this is what the world is like now ever since the battle of blah blah now it's this and this and this he didn't do that he is leaving us to sort things out for ourselves and we have to be watching for the clues because they're not being very obvious about it which, which is fine um just you know right here um that i just read in this last paragraph that the traveler might be literate was statistically unlikely. So literacy has gone is down the tubes. People aren't reading anymore or they can't, you know, can't read anymore. And it sounds like since the vulgar dialects of the people had neither alphabet nor orthography. So no one is writing either. That's huge. There's no written communication of any kind and if one when they think of the world that is what the world is like then what has happened to remove all of our hard work all of our innovations all of our ambitions all of our struggles and trials and triumphs something has taken all that we have done and wiped it out and that is the fascinating thing with this story. Not necessarily the return to the medieval monkhood life. That seems to be a natural, I don't know if natural is the right word, but the swing towards, you know, from one extreme to the other, like, like Handmaid's Tale with Margaret by Margaret Atwood. Um, where a group goes from, you know, dealing with, uh, has gone so against the mainstream culture, they create their own culture, and then it just kind of spreads. In this case, it's just the extreme pi uh, male piety um, and living contentment in poverty and just, but the the loss of literacy. Tragedy is in this world. Not just that loss of life, but the loss of knowledge. And it sounds like the loss of imagination too. Which helps spur those changes, which helps spur the growth, which helps spur hope. And I do wonder what this Abbey of Leibowitz could be like. And I do wonder what this pilgrim is doing there and what brother Francis is got getting himself into as well, because he says he's an adolescent. So it's not like brother Francis is all that old. He's not of adult agency unless 
we are dealing with a time where kids are not kids for very long. I don't know. I guess we'll have to keep sipping from this cup to find out. So perhaps such a tale fits your own flavors. We'll see what other flavors we try in our next book next week. And I have, I'm hoping, so I, I got one more recommended read to me for next week. And after that, I have a different recommended read from an author whom I'm also interviewing. So I'm really excited about that. And so just stay tuned because it's going to be good. <laughs> I've already gone a lot longer than I wanted. I'm sorry. So until next time, read on, share on, and write on, my friends. Cheers. <laughs>